KMTT, Kimitzion Tetzei Torah. And this is Ezra Bik. Today is Thursday, Yom Chamishi, Bet Adar, second day of Chodesh Adar. Today's shiur will be given by Harav David Silberberg, who the veterans among you will remember from about five weeks ago when he gave the Pashat HaShavuashir. Rav uh, Silverberg prepared the shir two days in advance in quite a rush since he was on the way to the hospital with his wife and they're expecting a Mirza Shema baby any minute. We haven't heard any news yet. That's why I think it's any minute. and uh, Today's shir is in Pashat HaShavua. After the shir, I'll be back with the Halacha Yomit. Harav David Silverberg. Parshas Truma, of course, introduces the uh, the commandments regarding the uh, the Mishkan, the actual structure of the Mishkan, as well as the various kalim, the furnishings uh, inside the Mishkan. What I'd like to discuss in the shir this week are various issues related to the uh, construction of the Aron, the uh, the Ark, which of course contained the uh, the two luchos, the two tablets that Moshe brought down from Har Sinai, um, as well as the Sefer Torah, and so on. Now the Torah says regarding the Yaron, that they had to make four golden rings on the uh, on the four pa'amosav, on the four pa'amos, for argument's sake, we'll translate the word pa'amos as corners. Two rings on either side of the Yaron. And they were to make, B'nai Israel were to construct two, uh, they were to construct poles Made from Atzeshitim, the same material from which the Aron itself was built. The Tzibi saw some Zahav, like the Aron itself, they were to be plated with gold. The Hevei saw is Abadim Atabos Atzados Aron, and the Badim, the poles, were to be brought, were to be inserted inside the rings along the sides of the Aron, and that's how the Aron was, was transported. They were transported with poles. You'd have one Levi, or, or, or I should say, two Leviim on either side of the Aron, with the pole on his shoulder. And in that way, the Aron, when B'nai Israel would travel in the Midbar, that's how the Aron was transported. Um, the Torah does not tell us where exactly the rings were placed. Rashi, in his parish al Torah, Rashi writes, Uvezavios ha'elyonos samuch lekapores ha'yunisunos. Shtayim mikan, ushtayim mikan. That the four rings were placed on the upper corners of the Aron. On the top of the Aron, that's where you would find the Tabaos near the Kaporos. The, the Kaporos, of course, being the covering over the Aron. That's where the rings were. The Ramban disagrees with Rashi. The Ramban claims that the rings were not along the top of the Aron, but they were rather situated along the bottom of the Aron. And the Ramban brings two uh, proofs, or at least uh, two arguments, to support his claim. First of all, the Ramban claims that it would be too heavy for the Levium to carry the Aron if the rings, and hence the poles, were situated on top of the Aron. If you kind of picture it, the Levium, the Levium carrying the Aron with the poles on their shoulders and the Aron hanging hanging down in between the two sets of the Levium, the Ramban claims that that would have been too heavy for the Levium to carry. Secondly, the Ramban says, it would be much more respectful for the Aron if it was held up high as they were carrying it. If the Aron is dangling in between the two sets of the Levium, that, uh, that's not so respectful for the Aron. Certainly, the Aron deserves more respect than that, and therefore the Ramban claims it would be much more um, dignified for the Aron if the, the poles were on the bottom of the Aron, such that such as such that the Aron in its entirety 
would be held up high on top of the Levim's shoulders as they transported the Aron. Other Mepharshim uh, came to Rashi's defense and claimed that his position is correct. The Levush Ha'ora, one of the classic uh, commentaries on Rashi's parish, he uh, advances three arguments in support of Rashi. First of all, he claims, interesting idea, uh, it's an interesting observation, he says that according to the Ramban, if you think about it, when the Aron was at rest, when it was in the Kodesh HaKadoshim, it means the poles were lying flat on the floor. <coughs> Excuse me. So the poles were, were lying on the floor. And the Lord says it would be very difficult for the Levim to have to lift the Aron from the pole, holding the poles, picking the poles up from the ground. And by the same token, putting the putting the Aron down on the ground, it would mean you have to go all the way down. I mean, there's no really room for your fingers. It would be very difficult for them to... Uh, to put to place down the aron on the ground when they finished uh, carrying it when they reached to the, uh, the the destination. Recall that the aron was plated with gold, so it was uh, certainly a very heavy uh, item. And so the Bush claims that would be that would have been too difficult for the Levium. Secondly, he claims the opposite of the Ramban that uh, to the contrary it would actually be more difficult for the Levium to carry it if the entire weight of the aron, the entire aron was resting on their shoulders. If the aron was kind of hanging in the middle, because the poles were inserted along the top of the Aron, then that would have been easier for the Livium, rather than having the entire Aron lying on their shoulders. Finally, he claims, the Levush, that if the you, if the Livium carried the Aron um, from the bottom, meaning with the poles along the bottom of the Aron, then the two Livium walking behind, right, you had two Livium in front and two uh, on either side behind, that the vision of the two Levium walking behind would would be impaired. It would be it would be obstructed by the Aron. If the Aron hang down so they could see in front of them. But if the Aron was held on top of the shoulders, so the two Levium walking back they wouldn't be able to see where they were walking and that could have been dangerous and uh, it's he feels it would be impractical. The Maharal in Guraye, uh, he actually quotes proof from the Gemara that Rashi's Pshat is, is the correct one. The Gemara, both in Menachas Taf Tzadiches, as well as in Yuma Taf Mendalid, the Gemara says that the Rashi Habadim, the ends of the Badim, of the poles, protruded against the Parochas. Um, nobody was able to actually see the edges of the Badim, of the poles, but you saw their protrusion against the Parochas. And the Parochas, of course, being the curtain that divided in between the Kodesh HaKadoshim and the Kodesh. <coughs> and according to the Gemara, the badim used to, would, would protrude against the the parochas. The Gemara is a havamina that perhaps the badim actually tore through the parochas such that people outside were, were able to see the actual poles. The Gemara proves from a pasuk that that's not correct, and that only the protrusion was visible, whereas the poles themselves were not visible. So vast Jews, says the Maharal, it seems clear that the poles were in the air, meaning they were on top of the aron. If the poles were on the bottom of the aron, and Thus, they, they, they were actually lying on the ground, so then they wouldn't protrude, they wouldn't rip through the parochas. So they wouldn't even protrude against the parochas, they would go underneath the parochas. And, the, and then B'nai Israel would indeed be able to see the actual badim against what the Gemara says. Unless you might want to say that maybe the parochas hung all the way down and dragged along the floor, and for that reason the actual the, the badim did not actually, um, were not actually visible. So to that, the Maharal responds that uh, that would not be very respectful, that wouldn't be very dignified to have the parochas hanging on the floor. Undoubtedly, the parochas either did not reach the ground or reached or just barely touched the ground. Either way, if the badim were resting on the floor, as the Ramban claims, uh, presumably they would have uh, protruded all the way through, 
and they themselves would have been visible, not just their their protrusion. So that's interesting raya that the Gerayeh brings from the Gemara against the Ramban's uh, pshat. Many other mefarshim, uh, dating back as early as the Rush, uh, quoted by his son the Tour in the Perush Torah Torah, the Rush brought a different raya against the Ramban from the Gemara Masechah Shabbos Taf Tzari Beis. The Gemara there is discussing the Malacha of Hotza'a, the Malacha of carrying on Shabbos, which of course we learn from the transportation of the Kalim of the Mishkan. And uh, amidst that discussion, uh, the Gemara is trying to figure out how high the uh, the, the Mizbachos were uh, were held when they were transported, because that sets the precedent for the uh, for the Malach of Hotzah. And over the course of the uh, discussion, the Gemara claims that whenever you carry a heavy burden with poles, the way you do it is the most efficient way of carrying it is to is to position the poles one third of the way down one-third of the way down of the item, that's the most efficient, the easiest way to carry the given object. So it seems pretty clear that, the, that this is how they transported the kalim of the Mishkan. Like Rashi says, it was towards the top. It wasn't on the bottom, as the Ramban said, but rather it was towards the top. Um, several Mephorshim bring this uh, kasha against the Ramban, the Panim Yafos by the Balafla, and others, they bring this uh, they bring this question. Uh, I saw in Rav Shavel's notes to the parish Ramban, he mentions that the Klichemda, the Klichemda brings an, an brings an answer in the name of the Chasam Sofer. The Chasam Sofer suggests perhaps the Ramban held that the Gemara was not referring to the Aron, only the, only the Mizbechos or the other Kalim, only they were carried in this fashion. But as far as the Aron itself, Hazal say that the Aron was no say as no sav. The Aron really didn't need to be uh, transported, really didn't need to be carried. The Aron, of course, is symbolic. Of, of the actual presence of the Shekhinah itself. So it really did not have to, it did, did not require human beings to transport it. It could get around by itself. So therefore, quite conceivably, says the Chasim Sofer, it's possible that uh, they didn't have to carry the Aron in the most efficient manner. I Meaning they didn't have to figure out, based on the physics, what is the easiest way to transport the Aron. So therefore the poles weren't necessarily positioned in the most efficient way when transporting the Aron. And therefore the Gemara is not really referring to the Aron, it's referring to only the other Kalim. The problem with saying that, though, is that the Ramban himself, in arguing against Rashi, he brings the argument that the Aron would have been too heavy, according to Rashi's pshat. Ramban felt, according to Rashi, that the poles were, they ran along the top of the Aron, that would have been too heavy for the Levium to carry. So we see that the Ramban is sensitive to this issue as to how the Levium would manage carrying the Aron. According to the Chasm Sofer's assumption, the Ramban is, uh, the Ramban is, the Ramban held that that it was not necessary to work out uh, the the efficient way or the easiest way of carrying the Aron because essentially the Aron uh, carries itself. So uh, so this answer for the Ramban seems to be seems at least at first glance a little difficult to understand. Anyway, this is the machokas between Rashi and Ramban as to where the tabos, where the rings were positioned, and where whether the poles ran along the top of the Aron or the bottom of the Aron. There's another interesting machokas as to how many rings there were. How many rings were there in the uh, on the sides of the Aron? The the simple uh, reading of the Pasuk, and this is the more obvious uh, approach, and this is what the vast majority of Mepharshim hold, including Rashi, the Rashbam, the Ramban, and the Abarbanel, and it's also Medrash Lekachtov. All these sources say very clearly that there were four rings on, on the Aron. There were two on one side, two on the other side. The poles were inserted each pole through two rings on either side of the Aron, and that's how they carry the Aron. The problem is the formulation of the Pasuk. The Pasuk says, You make four rings 
and you put them in the four corners. And two rings on one side and two rings on the other side. So again, most Mepharshim say that what it means is the, the second half of the Pasuk is clarifying. How do you put four rings on the four corners? You put two rings on one side, two rings on the other side. The problem is the uh, the conjunction U. It says you put four rings on the four corners, and two rings on one side and two rings on the other side. So according to Tosvos, in Masechaz Yomad, Dafayin Beis, Omad Aleph, according to Tosvos, those are four extra rings, four other rings. The first half of the Pasuk speaks of four rings, and then in addition to that, you have What leads Tosvos to, uh, to reach this conclusion, besides the formulation of the Pasuk? Tosvos is dealing with a contradiction, or what appears to be a contradiction between a Pasuk here in Pasha's Truma and a Pasuk later in Chumash in Pasha's Bamibar. Here in Pasha's Truma, the Pasuk says, That's in Perachafei, Pasuk Tesvav. <coughs> the Torah requires that the Badim, the poles of the Aron, remain in the rings of the Aron. They remain attached to the sides of the Aron and should never be removed. And in fact, the Gemara there in Yuma says that whoever removes the Badim from the sides of the Aron is Loka. He gets Malkus. It's a, mit- it's a mitzvah's losa say from the Torah. The Ramam quotes it and he brings it down as one of the, in a Sefer mitzvah as one of the mitzvah's losa say. He talks about it also in Hechaz Kleha Mikdash. There is an Isidaraisa to remove the poles from the sides of the Aron. Yet, if we look in Parshas Bamidbar, Perak Dalid, when the Torah is describing the procedure for travel, for preparing the Mishkan when it came time to travel, this is in Bamidbar, Perak Dalid, Pasuk Vav, the Torah says that the Kohanim would come into the Kodesh HaKadoshim and they would cover the Aron, and they would place the poles along the sides of the Aron. At least that's what it sounds like, they place the poles. The implication, of course, being is that the poles were not already attached to the sides of the Aron, and therefore the Kohanim were required to attach the poles. That's the question that Tosos tried to deal with in Masechaz Yuma. So what they explain is that there were eight rings and two sets of poles. Okay, so there were eight rings and four poles. There were two sets of poles which remained permanently affixed to the sides of the Aron, and then there were, I'm sorry, there were, you're right, two poles that were permanently affixed to the sides of the Aron, and, they were, and then there were two additional poles which were used for transporting. The first set of poles, that wasn't for transporting. They, weren't, were, for, they were not for transporting the Aron, but uh, that, was part, that was the way the Aron was supposed to look. It was supposed to have these two poles in it. Then when it came time to carry the Aron, you put the two other poles inside the rings, and that's what the Pasuk was referring to in Pasha's Bamidbar. So that explains not only the contradiction, that the two psukim are referring to do to two different sets of poles, but but Tosas claim it also explains the uh, awkward formulation in the pasuk. The pasuk, as we mentioned, implies that there were that there were two sets of four rings, and now we know why there were two sets of four rings because there were two sets of poles. That is the approach that Tosas take in um, in Masechah's Yoma. The Malbim. Um, here in Parshas Truma, he says something very similar to Tosfos. He also says that there were eight rings and two. Se- and, but however, he also there was, there was th- that there was only one set of poles. There were two poles, and the the way it worked was there were the two sets of rings w- were situ- were positioned a little bit differently. The while the Aron was stationary, the poles were inserted in rings that were positioned in such a way that was not so uh, comfortable for transporting it. When it came time for transporting the Aron, the Kohanim had to move the poles into, into the other set of rings, 
which were positioned in a way which allowed for easier transportation of the Aron, and that's what the Pasuk is referring to in Parshas Bamidbar. So the Mabim too claims that there were eight rings, only he holds that there, were only one, that there was only one set of poles that would just move to the different uh, rings when it came time to move the Aron. The Ibn Ezra in his Parish Aruch, in Parish Akatsar, he doesn't, he holds like the standard view that there are only four rings, but in his Parish Aruch, he likewise claims that there were uh, eight rings. However, unlike the Mabim Metosvos, he claims that the, that the Badim were never moved. There were eight rings, four through which the Badim were inserted, and the other four rings were just for, de- for decoration. There was de- there were a decoration part of the, uh, Part of the way the Aron was to look, it, they didn't serve any function, they didn't contain anything, there were no poles inserted in them, they were just there for decoration. So uh, so just to summarize this point, most of the Mepharshim, the, the vast majority of the Mepharshim hold that there were only four rings of on the sides of the Aron to hold the um, the two poles, whereas Tosfos and Ibn Ezra, Perush Aruch, and the Malbim, they, they held that there were actually eight rings along the sides of the Aron. Um, getting back to uh, Tosfos' point, Tosfos asked, they asked regarding the, the contradiction between the Pasuk here in Chuma, which said that the poles were not allowed to be removed from the sides of the Aron, and the Pasuk in Pashas Bamibar, which states that the Kohanim had to uh, place the poles on the Aron when it was time to travel. We do find other answers given among the Mepharshim, uh, different from what Tosfos explained in Masachas Yuma. The Ibn Ezra has a very clever explanation there in Parshas Bamidbar for the Pasuk Vesamuas Badav. The Ibn Ezra says Vesamuas Badav does not mean that they inserted the poles inside the rings. Vesamuas Badav means that the Kohanim would place the poles on the shoulders of the Levim. The poles, of course, were already in place because the poles were never removed from the sides of the Aron. But the Kohanim, they part of their responsibility was to lift the Aron off the ground and then place it on the shoulders of the Levim to kind of give them a head start. Uh, to allow them uh, to then transport the Aron. That's how Ibn Ezra gets around the uh, gets around this problem. Um, interestingly, according to one girsa of a Gemara Masechah Yuma, that same Daftafa in Beis and Aleph, we have uh, yet another explanation, uh, yet another possible resolution to this question. <coughs> There's a very difficult and enigmatic passage in Masechah Yuma Daftafa in Beis. Where the Gemara asks a kasha, they, the Gemara asks a stira between two psukim, but it's not clear which two psukim uh, they're asking a stira from. The, uh, the Gemara says, Rabbi Yossi, Rabbi Hanina, Rami. Rabbi Yossi, Rabbi Hanina, he had the following problem with two psukim. See, if it says in one pasuk, that the poles had to remain in the rings of the Aron. And according to our gear, so the Gemara then asks, it also says is badav batabaos that the poles had to be brought were inserted into the rings. Now it's of course not clear at all how those two psukim contradict one another. So Rashi has his girsah, and, and uh, we find among the mafarshim the Nitziv in Hamik Davar, he has his own approach. We find different approaches among the mafarshim in explaining this gemara. There is one girsah which appears in the Sefer Moshev Zakenim Al Torah, which is a collection of perushim by the Baliyatosvos. It also appears in the Parish Hariva. According to their Girsa in this Gemara, the Gemara is asking the exact question that Tosfos raised. The second Pasuk that the Gemara is mentioning here is that Pasuk in Parshas Bamidbar Vesamuas Badav that says that the Kohanim had to place the Badim along the sides of the Aron. That's exactly the question the Gemara is coming to uh, to address. But then the question becomes, how, what's the Gemara's answer? 
The Gemara resolves this contradiction. The Gemara says, Ha-Ketzad, misparkin ve'ein nishmatin. That the poles would be removed. I'm sorry, the poles could be dislodged, but they couldn't be removed altogether. Meaning, as Rashi explains, the ends of the poles were wider than the middle section of the poles, such that the poles could be jostled. They could be uh, moved to and fro within the rings, but they could never be removed from the rings because the ends of the poles were simply too wide. So how does that answer the question? What does that have to do with the contradiction between the Pasuk and Pasha's Shuma and the Pasuk and Pasha's Bamidbar? I saw of Menachem Kasher in uh, one of the footnotes in Torah Shlema. He suggests that according to the Moshe of Zikanim and the Riva, according to their Gears and the Gemara, the Gemara's answer is as follows. Since the poles could be moved within the rings, they couldn't be removed, but they could be jostled and pushed in one direction or the other, it was very likely that by the time the Kohanim came, when it was time to travel, and the Kohanim came to uh, get everything ready for travel, it was very possible that the poles would be uneven, that it would, there would be longer on one side of the Aron and shorter on the other side of the Aron, which, would, of course, would make it very difficult for the Levim trying to carry the Aron. And that's why, that's what the Pasuk means. But Samuas Badava doesn't mean they would now attach the Badim, attach the poles to the sides of the Aron. That's not what the Pasuk means. The Pasuk means is that they would have to adjust the poles. They would adjust the poles to make sure that, they, that the poles were evenly um, distributed, so to speak, along the sides of the Aron. So that's, that would be another way of resolving this contradiction between the Pasuk here in Shuma and the Pasuk in Parshas Bamidbar. Um, the next issue uh, that I want to discuss is the uh, the strange word in the Pasuk, Pa'amosav. I mentioned before that for argument's sake we tra- will translate it as corners. And that's uh, in fact how most Mepharshim explain. The Pasuk says that you that the four rings of the Aron were to be placed on the four Pa'amos. Uh, on the four corners of the Aron. However, the Ibn Ezra, in his Perish Aruch, he claims that this is the uh, this is not the correct interpretation of the Pasuk. I'll read you what the Ibn Ezra writes. Yeah, the Ibn Ezra here in on Pasuk Yibbez, he says, I searched throughout all of Tanakh for the Matsasi Pa'am Shehuzaviyos. I have not found that the word Pa'am is ever used in reference to corners. Rak Milashon Regel. It only refers to feet. And he brings several Pasukim, one from Sefer Yeshayahu, Perak Havav, Raglei Ani Pa'amei Dalim, Pasuk in Sefer Tehillim, Perak Pehe, Pasuk Yedalid, Viyaseim Lederech Pe'amav, and a Pasuk in Shirashir, Mayafu Fe'omayach. There it means feet. And therefore, according to the Ben Ezra, it means that the Aron had feet. The Aron did not lie flat on the ground. Rather, the Aron stood on on, on, on on little feet, and the Ibn Ezra thought that that would, that would actually be more dignified. Okay, the Ibn Ezra says, he says, Therefore, I have no choice but to explain that the Aron had feet. It would, be, uh, it would not be dignified for the Aron to lie flat on the ground. Okay, so therefore, he says that the four rings were situated in the bottom of the Aron, um, near the feet. The Ramban quotes the Ibn, quotes the Ibn Ezra's uh, theory and he disagrees. The Ramban here says, The Ibn Ezra is incorrect. Uh, he says that, that that is not true at all, that the Aron would be sitting on feet. And he claims that we find the word the word uh, referring to footsteps. 
Mayafuf, he actually quotes the Pasuk and Shashim that Ibn Ezra quoted, Mayafuf Amayach, Ba'na Alim Bas Nadiv. It means footsteps. He also quotes a Pasuk from Sefer Shoftim, Madua Icharu Pa'amei Markavosav, from Shiraz Devar and Sefer Shoftim Parakei, where clearly Pa'amei refers, uh, refers to footsteps. So according to the Ramban, it means footsteps, and what it means is it was on, it was along the bottom of the Aron. Remember, according to the Ramban, the uh, the as we mentioned before, the rings were situated along the bottom of the Aron, and he claims that the uh, that 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 the word pa'amos refers to footsteps, refers to the people who are transporting the Aron, and that's how the Ramban explains. Anyway, so there's a machlokas between the Ezra and the Ramban as to whether as to whether the Aron had feet or whether it lay flat on the floor. It's interesting to know that Rashi, here in his Perish Allah Torah, on Perachafei Pasagiri, says explicitly, So Rashi says that the word Aron itself actually refers to a kind of chest that lies flat on the ground without any feet. So Rashi clearly disagrees with Ibn Ezra, and Rashi explicitly holds that, uh, that the Aron did not have any feet. Okay, the uh, the last point I'd like to discuss is a uh, different comment of the Gemara in Yuma, Dafai and Beis, regarding the construction of the Aron. <coughs> the Torah says that the Aron was made from atzei shitim, from shitim wood, but it was plated inside and out with gold. And the Gemara sees this as uh, symbolically very significant. The Gemara says, it quotes uh, Rava as saying, that kol tamid chacham, just like the Yaron had to be the same inside and out, and, and out, its interior had to correspond to its exterior, so too a Tamil Chacham has to be the same way. He has to be Tocho Kivaro. Just like a Tamil Chacham gives the impression, he gives this very uh, noble image, he conducts himself uh, in a very honorable and respectful and noble way, that really has to be the way he, really, the way he actually is. He has to be inside the way he, uh, the, the same way he gives his appearance of uh, dignity and honor. That's really the way he, the way he should truly act and should truly be. It's interesting that several mafarshim raised the question: If that's true, if the Torah wants to uh, wants to have the Aron constructed in such a way that conveys this message of of consistency between exterior and the interior of a Talmud Chacham. If that's true, then why not make the, the Aron entirely of gold? Why, why, why was it made of wood and only plated inside and out with gold? Why not make the, uh, the Aron in its entirety out of gold? So this question was asked uh, in a number of different sources. The Rabbosina Bali HaTosfos, the parish of Rabbosina Bali HaTosfos Torah, they give a very pragmatic answer. They say that it would, it would just be too heavy. When we spoke earlier about the fact that the Aron was made of gold, and different Mepharshim trying to figure out what would be the best way for the Levim to carry it, the Rabbi Sinabal say, look, if you made the Aron two and a half almost by, two and a, by, by an arm and a half, if it was made entirely of gold, that would, that would be too heavy for the Levim to carry. So the, it had to be made of wood, which is a little bit lighter, and it was plated inside and out with gold to convey this message of consistency, of Tocho Kivaro. The Midrash Tanchuma in Pashas Vayakel gives a different explanation. The Medrash Tanchuma views the wooden substance of the Aron as symbolic of poverty. Uh, in contrast to gold, which is, of course, the, uh, the symbol of wealth, of affluence, the wood, 
the wood is symbolic of poverty. And the Medrash says that if you see a Talmud Chacham who's poor, you should still respect him. Even though he's not necessarily, uh, he doesn't come across as aristocratic as the wealthy people of his time, nevertheless, he, should, he still deserves respect because of the gold on his interior and his exterior. So therefore, uh, the, um, the wood from which the Aaron is made from refers to, uh, I guess, what we call the Gashmios. His material, uh, the 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 Talmud Chacham's uh, material condition, so to speak, the fact that he doesn't he does not necessarily have as much have as much money as other people, and yet nevertheless, we just still treat him as a golden object. We just still treat him uh, with nobility as a, as a uh, as a prominent and distinguished individual uh, because of his uh, Torah knowledge. The uh, I saw in a sefer called Yalkut Yehuda. It's a sefer written by Rav Yehuda Ginsburg, who was a Rav in Denver, Colorado, in the earlier part of the tw- of the twentieth se- century. He uh, he gives a very interesting explanation as to uh, the symbolism here of the wood, the wood uh, that the Aaron was made out of wood and plated inside out with gold. He claims that even the Talmud Chacham has to be made of what other human beings are made out of. You can't have a Talmud Chacham made totally of gold, who's completely perfect, who has no human frailties, who has no human tendencies, who's completely uh, angelic and otherworldly. The Talmud Chacham, too, the leader of a community, a Rav, uh, he also has to have uh, basic human qualities. But he has to be he has to be plated with gold inside and out. It has to be refined. It has to be on a higher level. But that doesn't mean he, he has to be a, a human being who's just uh, who has perfected himself uh, to one extent or, or another, who has developed himself, who has raised himself. And he wants to say perhaps that's a symbolism of what the Rabbosina Bali Hatosvas were referring to. That the the, Tosos, the Rabbosina Bali Hatosvas says the Aaron couldn't be carried if it was made entirely of gold. So the Yaakov Yehuda suggests, Adarach that so too a Talmud Chacham who's made entirely of gold, if a Talmud Chacham is too perfect, if he's not human at all, if he's made only of gold and not of wood, People wouldn't be able to carry him. They wouldn't be able to handle him. They wouldn't be able to learn from him. Uh, he he wouldn't find a place. He wouldn't find an audience. He would not be able to inspire and to influence people if he's made entirely of gold. And that's why the Aron is made primarily of wood. A Tamil Chacham is a human being. He's not uh, he's not an angel. He's not in another world. He too has the same drives, the same inclinations, and the same needs as other human beings. However, he's plated with gold. He has worked on himself, he has refined himself, he's developed himself, and he has worked to, uh, to live his life on a higher level. Not that he's entirely made of gold, but rather that he's plated inside and out with gold. Shabbat Shalom. You have been listening to Arav David Silverberg in Pashat Shavua. For today's Halacha Yomit, we're in Hilchot Tefillah. The Shulchan Aruch Paskind, Shelo Ya'amod B'makom Gavoa. The Gemara says, that one should not stand on a high place when davening, because it's written, Hashem. I pray to you from the depths, and therefore one should not pray from a high place. The explanation, I think everyone agrees, this means is that tefillah comes literally from the depths, the depths of the heart, but also the depths of where one is standing. To stand on a high place, you have the danger of somehow a kind of pride, a kind of, of looking down, on others, maybe even on God, on the world, on your own situation. Uh, standing in a low place allows one to daven with the proper heart, not only with the proper physical position. 
the poskim say that this what does it mean a low place? Every place is a high relative to some other place. A low place and a high place means relative to its immediate surroundings. So if the place that you're standing on is large enough to be a place in and of itself, doesn't have a relationship to another place, then it's okay. So either if it's dalid al dalid, it's four amot on four amot, or if it's ten pachim high, according to the Sampos game, or if it has mechitzot. For instance, the chazan, that was on the bima, the bima is large. It's dalid al dalid, and sometimes it even has a, a wall around it. So then you don't measure that in relationship to the rest of the shul. It's a place in and of itself. As opposed to standing on a chair or on a, a, a very small elevated thing, standing on some sort of a, of a podium or a, uh, a, a, uh, a stool. That is what is meant as being a sur. What does it mean to be high? So the Paskim say three tvachim. Three tvachim is about 24, 25, maybe 27 centimeters, about 11 inches. Uh, because less than three tvachim in many, many places in Halakha is considered to be part of the ground. There's, every ground has a bump. Just a bump in the ground. It's not a distinct elevation. So the Paskim decided that three tvachim is the shiur. Nonetheless, the Beit Yosef brings a, an opinion that stand on a chair or a stool or a pillow, even if it's less than three tvachim, is asur. And it's for a completely different reason. Basically, it's not based on the Gemara itself. The Gemara talks about mimamakim, as opposed to not being mimamakim. That, as we said, is a law in pride. But the poskim raises another consideration, that if you're standing on a narrow, a narrow stool, even if it's not to be tvachim high, but you will be insecure. And there's a general halacha that you have to maximize kavanah, you have to maximize your intention. And to stand in a place, or in a manner, which necessitates that you think about yourself, you think about maintaining your balance, or about if someone's going to bother you, so there's a whole string of halachot which forbid that sort of a thing because it interferes with, with kavanah. A very uh, uh, well-known but unfortunately overlooked halacha is that one is not allowed to hold anything while saying Shemon Esrei, which you would be concerned about if it fell. A sitter is an exception because it's so rech tefillah. You, you won't drop it because you're, you, you're using it in tefillah. But to hold your watch in your hand or, or some other valuable thing is forbidden because it interferes with kavanah. Uh, if that's true, if you're not allowed to hold a watch, you're sure you're not allowed to hold your baby. Since you would be very much concerned if you dropped him. And it interferes with kavanah. It's quite common to see young people who they brought a young child to shul, which is a question in and of itself, and come Shimon Esrei and they can't leave him sitting because then he'll start to annoy and bother other people, so they pick him up and they dump him with the child in their arms. And back to our topic, so there's this halacha board in the Beit Yosef, one should not stand even on something which is low if it's insecure. Because it's very narrow and you have to maintain your balance. It's not what the Gemara is talking about, it's a different halacha altogether. There's halacha of pride, here's halacha of insecurity and kavanah. There's a third halacha mentioned in the Torah that says that one should stand without anything interfering between one's feet and the ground. And the basis of that, some poskim thought you shouldn't even dive in on a, on a small rug. A large rug might be already, uh, like we said, a makom atzmo, an independent place. But, but just a small rug, like what's called in other religions, a prayer rug, uh, might be forbidden. They, in some shuls they had that, so they asked. The whole halacha is very, very strange. It's based on a beautiful idea that the Torah mentions a number of times, and that is that someone who is davening is like a kohen who is bringing a sacrifice. Because tefillah, 
is in place of sacrifices. So the mitpalel is in place of the kohen. Now a kohen who's bringing a sacrifice has to stand directly on the floor of the Beit HaMikdash without any chatzitzah, any interruption between his feet and the ground. So therefore, you should be a kohen, you should stand the same way. Saying that is a little bit strange because if it were to be true, literally, you couldn't wear shoes either. The kohen in Beit HaMikdash was barefoot. His foot had to touch the floor of the Beit HaMikdash. He didn't wear shoes, but we all wear shoes, of course. So, and also the Achai has no actually has no basis in the Gemara. So, the way the post can treat these ideas is that they're nice ideas. They're not exactly, literally meant to be taken uh, in the exact form in which they were said. You should stand close to the ground, so you can wear shoes, but you shouldn't stand on top of something. And even that, it's only lechatchila. It's a good idea. It doesn't have the way most posts can assume. It doesn't have final halachic validity. So again, when Shunat Aben on a high place, more than Tvit Fachim, if it's small enough so that it relates to the surroundings. And one should also not stand in a manner which causes insecurity and a need to maintain, one, to maintain a special effort to maintain, to maintain one's balance. Uh, as I said, Poskim all allow one to daven on a high place if it's large enough or if it's surrounded by, by walls. Uh, since the Lacha is really one of one's heart, one should daven mim from the depths of one's heart, so I think you should also uh, fulfill this in the way that, that makes sense to you, that fulfills your own expectations. So it could be, I, I think a chazan davening on a bima doesn't have a problem, but sometimes in the back of the shul there might be a raised platform of some sort. It might meet halacha qualifications of a separate place, but you really have to also daven mim So make sure that you really don't, uh, standing there doesn't give you the feeling that you're over the rest of the congregation. Something which happens when we're standing in high, in high places. Personally, those who are familiar with Yeshivat Haratzion, know that the back of the Beit Midrash is what's called in Hebrew the Rampa, the ramp. The, it's an elevated section. It's where I sit when I learn, but I never dive in there, even though it's perfectly okay. Mibchina Hizchatit, Halacha, Lemaseh, it's okay, and many people obviously do dive in there. But in the 30 years I've been in Shivat HaRatzion, I never dive in there. I just don't feel comfortable because you're looking down on the Chazan. You're looking down at everybody else. Even if you close your eyes, at least to me, I feel that I'm somehow over them. And it's not conducive in my own mind. This is personally a completely private and personal thing. It's not conducive to proper to proper tefillah. That's it for today. We're back tomorrow with the Erev Shabbat program. You've been listening to KMTT, Kimitzion Tetzei Torah. This is Ezra Bik in Gush wishing you Kol Tov. Until tomorrow, Kimitzion Tetzei Torah, Udvar Hashem Mirushalayim.